a podcast about amazing people from an incredible state. Amazing Arizonans with Mike Broomhead. All right, this is Amazing Arizonans, and uh, I'm trying to tell stories of people that I've met throughout my life that I think are incredible, and this is definitely one of them. Christine Jones joins us. How are you? Thanks for having me. I haven't seen you in so long, but there's so much ground to cover with you. Um, I'm going to start with the places I know, and I want you to fill in the blanks, because I think your story is incredible. Um, First, let's talk about GoDaddy, because for me, that name and working with Bob Parsons and that company coming into fruition is something that's an amazing story, but your involvement in all of that. Please talk about that. Yeah, so GoDaddy is an amazing Arizona success story, and it wouldn't have been possible without Bob Parsons, who is just a brilliant serial entrepreneur, has moments of sheer genius when it comes to marketing. But, you know, I was practicing law and got a phone call and got invited to come interview for a tiny little startup company in North Scottsdale called GoDaddy. And I actually went to the interview as a favor to a friend of mine and, of course, ended up joining the company. And I thought, eh, you know, there's maybe a dozen people or something. Maybe I'll help them get sort of situated as a real company and have HR policies and things like that. And, you know, more than a decade later, I was still there doing what we're doing. But we And grew- how much had it grown in that decade? So we grew from... You know, just a dozen or so people to about 4,000 employees, most of them right here in Arizona. By the time we ended up, you know, entering a transaction to sell a majority interest, of course, the company then went public. And today they have many thousands of employees and and locations all over the world. By far the global leader in, in domain names and Internet hosting and, you know. So my website's with. Yeah, and thank you for that, because <laughs> that $9 really, really helped us out, because a lot of $9 adds up to a lot. But yeah, it was it was a great success story. And, you know, my, one of the things that I didn't anticipate going there is that in late 2001, when I joined, technology was going pretty quick, but policy never goes quick, as we, as we know, watching what's going on in Congress right now. So I had the incredible opportunity to kind of spend time in Washington working on establishing policy that that governs the internet and working with lots of people in lots of different contexts, whether it was other domain registrars or hosting providers or even, God forbid, Google and and then later Facebook. We did build out a, a sort of a set of policies that now help make the internet a better and a safer place. I don't think people understand the importance in that role. And I know that you were a part of a forum where we talked about this, that you were really on the cutting edge of, on one hand, we have to protect our clients' information and privacy from the government. But you had a sense of responsibility that the internet now could be used as a tool by predators. And how do we balance the two? You really were a big part of the ground floor of that, weren't you? Yeah. And, and again, none of us really anticipated this. We thought the internet is one Wonderful for a lot of good things, whether it's education or, or commerce or gaming or, you know, whatever, the, sure. whatever the case might be. But people also do not nice things on the Internet. And so over time, as we amassed a bigger presence and ended up running about a third of the traffic on the Internet, if you can imagine, yeah. out of this tiny little company up in, up in North Scottsdale, we realized that the, the people who were engaging in illicit activity were interesting to law enforcement, and we could be really helpful. So, you know, we had to strike a balance, but we did help law enforcement catch a lot of bad guys. And, you know, I don't know if you want to go into the whole Snowden thing, but over time it, sure. it became no. it became evident that 
and I used to not be able to talk about this, but now that Snowden leaked the entire thing, we, we can at least acknowledge that the the foreign corrupt uh, uh, courts existed, right? And so we started to participate in helping catch not just your run-of-the-mill bad guys who were running pill farms and, you know, uh, not to to say that this is normal, but child pornography and things like that. But it turned out that you could also help catch people who were spying and potentially avoid terrorist attacks and things like that. So when Snowden came out with this whole PRISM program and every single major internet company had participated in it except for one, it really gave me the platform to say, look, we want to help catch bad guys, but we will not help you infringe on constitutional rights. And so, you know, just over time, I was able to say, look, if you come to me with any kind of proper document from a court of competent jurisdiction, whether it's a subpoena or a search order or a seizure warrant, anything like that, I'll help you. But I will not help you infringe the rights of law-abiding citizens. And now you know that we were getting these FISA orders. And by the way, I had to have a security clearance just to accept the order. Right. Uh, I hear because of what was in them. Because of what was in them. And I hear people talking about FISA like they're experts. They have no idea what they're talking about. You know, two FBI agents would come deliver these orders to me in a locked bag. I personally had to re- physically receive it. So no electronic transmission of it. And I could be the only person in the company that was even aware that those those things were going Did on. Did you have to have a skiff at... Go, Daddy, did you have to have a special room to keep those documents? We couldn't keep the documents. Oh, you could just look at them and then... That's right. So they come, they come in a locked, like, you know, like a bank vault sure. kind, of, yeah. kind of a thing. Two FBI agents deliver it. Sometimes they would fly from Washington to deliver it. And I would say, you know, guys, this seems kind of expensive. Why don't I just pick it up next time I'm in D.C.? And they would say, Christine, we've got a plane flying around that costs us, you know, X number of thousands of dollars a minute. Yeah. <laughs> just waiting for this information. So, you know, weirdly, wow. this little crazy company with the Super Bowl ads and the girl with the tank top ended up being involved in, in helping prevent some really bad stuff. It's fascinating you say that, because when I think of GoDaddy, I think about being an ISP or, you know, someone that I buy my domains. My broomhead.com is with GoDaddy. That's a we, great domain, by the way. W- well, it's you and I talked about that. Yep. I actually got it for a lot less money than they actually wanted to sell it to me for. So I was very fortunate. But to have that domain name, um, we that's what we think of. But you getting to know you showed me that you had to be a big part of standing up for your clients and at the same time having the responsibility to know that that's a powerful place to be when you've got one third of the Internet traffic coming through your building, that there's a lot of bad people out there. What was that like for you personally? Well, it's it's this weird tension, right? Because on the one hand, you want to take a policy that says our default position is open exchange of ideas. Leave up the content and don't. I, I mean, now we hear a lot of people talking about the big tech companies monitoring speech sure. or shutting down free speech. So your position always as a constitutional conservative is leave it up. Let people engage in the speech. But then on the other hand, you have to know that when that much traffic is going through your system and you have the ability to cut off bad stuff. Now you have to have a balance, right? right? And you have to think about this really in a cerebral way and you can't let politics get involved in it. And you, you know, you can't let your own personal proclivities guide the day because 
you know, when you're sitting there talking to the president of the United States and he's saying, I have a terrorist leader that we need to get. You're going to let politics rule that decision. You right. can't. You just can't do that. So it turned out that this crazy little company with a funny name ended up having the ability to help help in a lot of those situations. So let's talk about that growth, because as you said, you came here. I'm going to help this tiny little company get started. When Mr. Parsons finally decided to sell the majority in this company and there were shareholders like yourself, but other people that had been invested in this company and its growth, the amount of money in those checks I'm saying because of the growth that had to be daunting to you to realize that in a what was a short period of time had grown into this huge yeah. company. Yeah, it was really, uh, I mean, in a way, very celebratory. And, and, you know, we thought that we had created something really great. And by the way, all 4000 of those people contributed. Right. It wasn't right. just Bob. It wasn't just me. It wasn't just the executives. It was every single human being who was involved there. But the people who had started when there were two or three or five or six employees and had stuck with it and had worked overnight and had worked weekends and had hardened the system against the influx of 100 million people coming to your your site at the same time during during a Super Bowl ad, that we were able to to help them become financially independent because of their sacrifice and because of their commitment and because of their contribution was one of the single best days of my life. Getting those people in a room and saying, we're going to sell the company. It's going to be a two and a half billion dollar transaction, which, by the way, was the largest private transaction in the history of the Internet still to this day. Wow. Yeah, because most companies take uh, just to put this in perspective for listeners, most companies that are startups take outside money. We had no outside investors. We had no debt. So all of that was a private sale. Wow. So, you know, you're sitting there in a room full of people that you've known for a long time. And it, it gives me a chill even now to talk about it. And knowing that their children and their children's children are probably going to be, well, corrupted by their money, but, but also <laughs> set up, you know, set up for generations was literally it was the single most impactful day of my life. And for you, when did it click for you? When did it go from I'm going to go to this little company and help them to I'm a part of something that I'm really proud of? Well, it started in a funny way, because even before I had left my law firm, Bob Parsons called me and he had he had been contacted by a woman who found a naked picture of herself on the Internet. And he said, what do I do? Should I leave it up or take it down? And I said, well, I don't know, Bob. I'm a securities lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. And it was almost immediately that I realized the law was not keeping up with what was going on. So the ability to influence policy became obvious to me pretty quick. But. None of us knew, not Bob, not me, nobody in that in that space knew that we would be at the right time, in the right place, with the right message to become the largest. Because don't forget, we were the 47th largest registrar out of 50. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> at the time. I right? did not know that. Now there are thousands and thousands and thousands. I mean, we we had tens of thousands of, of resellers that, that resold our products, and we became by far the biggest. I mean, you know, bigger than the next 10 largest competitors combined. When you um, you were just talking about that responsibility, but when you look at that growth in that company and you influencing policy, hasn't it always been this way with technology that the law lags well behind technology? It's always playing catch up with technology. Do you think we, it will ever catch up? No, it can't. 
It can't. And you look at what's going on with artificial intelligence and machine learning that now. That was the next question. Yeah. I mean, what's going on? And, and policymakers try to keep up. But you think about a policymaker that you knew, and you t- you've talked about Senator McCain a lot or Senator Kyle, you know, John Shadig, some of the guys that were around at that time who were really, really putting in the work and really putting in the effort to try to keep up. They can't. Because in one moment, somebody's coming into you to talk about water rights. And the next moment, they're talking about, you know, selling oil to foreign states. And the next minute, they're talking about home manufacturing. There's there's just no way for them to keep up. But isn't the... Isn't it possible for a legislator? Let's talk about John Kyle with what he did with water. You can educate yourself on water, and it's a pretty static education. Water is water is water, and what can we do to improve it? Technology changes so fast that even the experts are playing catch-up many times. It's really hard. So you watch these hearings in Congress, whether it's the the hearings with the CEOs from the large tech companies or the, you know, the Twitter hearings after the Twitter files, not a single person on that dais knew the questions to ask. If they had somebody who had experience, say, for example, me asking the questions, uh, not to shine light on my own self, but you really could put in perspective what the issues were. But you can't expect people who have been in, in office, particularly not in our system where people stay in office a really long time, to be up on those issues, to your point. They just don't stay the same. They change every single day. So they have to be getting advice, but they have to be getting sound advice. And that's where you came in. And were you a trusted voice to the majority of those people? My sense is, and you know, I can't speak for them, but I do know that there was a lot of due diligence around our transaction. And when the people who, and if you're going to pay two and a half billion dollars for something, you're entitled to know everything there is to know about it. When they started asking around on the Hill, they did say that we view technology policy as being synonymous with Christine Jones, which I took as a super high compliment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you hear a lot of stories about people in office and there's lots of perceptions about how people are in the public but i can tell you when it came to protecting children protecting the elderly doing the right thing on the internet bipartisan coalitions of members came alongside me and they really helped me push through very important legislation that still exists today and funds Crimes Against Children task forces and, you know, Homeland Security and, yeah. and you know, those sorts of things. And, and they just really put down their swords. When you uh, let's talk a little bit more about your career, because I read something on social media that you posted recently Uh-oh. about Snoop Dogg. <laughs> I, I thought I've known you for a long time. We've never talked about Snoop Dogg. Well, so this became kind of a controversial thing when I was running for governor, because when I was in law school, I worked at the DA's office in Los Angeles for three years. And, you know, there was all this controversy about was she a prosecutor? Was she not? And L.A. or the state of California has a fantastic program where law students can become certified. And then you can actually try cases yourself, which I did, which was the best experience ever, right? If you could actually make a living being a prosecutor, every lawyer would do it because it's the best job. But I was a law clerk in the hardcore gang division when Snoop Dogg was being tried for murder. And a lot of people don't even remember that he was. I didn't. Because he's so ubiquitously well-regarded as a businessman. And the guy is a genius, clearly, right? But a couple of my, my buddies there were were working on that case and, and asked me to just do some back, you know, background stuff. But we went to court 
And whether it was, you know, crime scene photos or blow, you know, trial exhibits or that sort of thing that law clerks do, we were able to be in the courtroom when the case was going on. And the thing that that I posted recently was because Tupac was murdered and somebody who was involved in his murder was recently arrested. Right. 23 years later. Right. Right. So the, you know, you end up getting involved in so many crazy things in your life. I mean, you went from rodeos to electrician to who knew that you were going to be sitting here having an interview with me today. Right. You couldn't have predicted that. Right. Never. I couldn't have predicted that I was going to work on the OJ case ever. Right. Like, how could that have happened? By the way. The anniversary. I know. I, I know. But at least, you know, he, he I get it. eventually got his comeuppance, I think, a little bit. But and now he was talking about the Murdoch case because suddenly he's the expert. Yeah. Or, OK, OK, OJ, I, I slow your roll. A little bit, <laughs> I know. Right? Slow your roll. But the but the Snoop Dogg thing was really interesting because my point there was. And I think this is true for every single human being in whatever context they exist in. He had a family that supported him. In his case, it were it was the people behind Death Row Records and the people who were the recording artists. And some of these names now are just ubiquitous, right? So Dr. Dre. Yeah. Tupac Shakur. Mm-hmm. Suge Knight, right? Though they literally came to the courtroom every, every day. single day to support Snoop. And what was funny is in your post, you reminded everybody that he used to be Snoop Doggy Dog. <laughs> Before he was just called Snoop, he actually had a name that was different than what he's known by now. That's how far back you go with him. I mean, I guess who's the Beyonce's husband? Um, I don't know. Jay Z, right? Okay. He's he's had Thank several, you. he's had several different names too, right? I guess as they grow up, they have to like you know have. But more, he's known now more, just as Snoop, right? He's just Snoop now. But he was Snoop Doggy Dog back then, and he was eighteen or nineteen years old, skinny little kid with little braids, and he was involved in a drive-by shooting in Long Beach. And we don't need to go into the whole story, but we did roll out to the scene to to serve a search warrant on his on his duplex there in Long Beach, which was a complete disaster. I thought it was going to be like pimp my ride. OK, but it was a, a complete. Um, He's had an upgrade of, since then. Um, a little bit of an upgrade. He had already sold like a million records, I think, yeah. something like that by that time. And his music was just brilliant. Just brilliant. Still is. Still is. The, the, he's just a gifted, a gifted musician. Well, I just wanted to bring that up because you have had so many interesting stories, which is why I wanted to tell some of them. So let's move away just for a moment from the law career to politics, because um, you ran for governor and were just edged out in the primary. You ran for Congress for the House. And it wasn't at the smallest margin of defeat in the history of elections in Arizona? It was. How many votes? So at the end of counting, Andy Biggs was ahead by nine votes. Nine. Which required an automatic recount. And through a series of court proceedings and, and, you know, advocating for additional votes to be counted, he ended up winning by 27. So what's interesting to me about this is I know it was a tough primary with with Governor Ducey. It ended up being a tough primary, tough loss. Um, and then same with the House race, even tougher with 27 votes in a in a House primary. But you stayed engaged. You continue to be supportive of the process and supportive of a lot of people, not just in presence, but financially. Uh, what motivated you? Was it your policy stuff that you had done with GoDaddy that motivated you into that world to stay in that world? 
I mean, originally, you know, you show up, I was testifying in Congress a lot, and you show up on C-SPAN, and people say, hey, you know, you seem to have a knack for this policy development thing when you think about running for office. Mm -hmm. And I always said, no, I think I'm actually more effective and more powerful not being in office. But Jan Brewer was going to have a term limit, and there was going to be an open seat in the in the governor's race, and, and I spent six months probably full-time talking to people. Why is it me and not you? Like, hey, Mike, why don't you run for governor, mm. right? People know you. You're very passionate about it. You have policy positions that you believe in. Why don't you run for governor? To have a, cl- a closet full of skeletons. Okay, so this was one of the excuses I got, <laughs> <Okay>. right? <laughs> this was one of the excuses. I, my kids are too young. My parents are too right, old. Right. I have not enough money. I have too much money. Everybody had an excuse, including I have too many skeletons in my closet. At the end of the day, I felt like it was something that I was called to do, and you know, I try not to over-spiritualize things, but I did feel like that was a place that I was supposed to be. And, you know, but it it never, and I don't think it ever should become a personal vendetta when you lose to somebody, right? I mean, at the end of Doug's term, I actually hosted the luncheon forum, right? Yeah. I, I emceed the luncheon forum because it, if you don't have enough integrity to believe in the outcome, And if you object to it, object. If you want to litigate it, litigate it. But at the end of the day, you have to go with what the outcome is. Then, you know, it seems inherently un-American to me. Right. I don't don't want to cast aspersions on anybody that, that takes a different position. And I know, at least in Arizona, there's deeply heartfelt belief that the election system was rigged or fraudulent sure. or, or whatever. And you'll, you'll never disabuse people of that notion. It's almost like a religious belief. But I've just had to come to grips with the fact that if you don't believe in the outcome and you don't support the person who's in the office, then you're not really participating in the constitutional republic. And I think that's uh, it's one of the things I've admired about about you most, because it would have been one thing if you had walked away and not made any noise. That would have been one thing. But to stay in and support some of the people that was it was those were tough races. They were very they tough. were they were tough battles. I mean, all of you are tough people, type A personalities. And for you to exactly. stay engaged in the process because you wanted it wanted it to be better. I think it, it says a lot about who you are. Would you consider or is that ship sailed another run for another office? I mean, look, Mike, every single day somebody asks me to run for something and I don't have any current plans to run. I have a software company that I own that's functioning, and I have a law firm that I run that's that's doing well. So I don't have any current plans, but I always leave open the possibility that I'm if I'm supposed to, and there's what I perceive to be a vacuum in leadership, I'll I'll be open to the opportunity. Certainly, as of today, that that's not the case. Okay, so I got to go back because I forgot a question I needed to ask you about your your previous life with GoDaddy. I, I completely spaced this. That's why these things are... Yes! <laughs> is didn't you do... Weren't you in one of those ads? Weren't you the, the lawyer at the table in one of those... And for anybody that's too young to remember, they were racy. It was Danica Patrick in a bikini. And, no, Danica was never in the bikini. No, but it was Danica Patrick yeah. and it was somebody, other girls. But they were racy ads. Yes. Yeah. And you were the lawyer... In the ad. 
Yeah, so we had a, an ad once we started sponsoring Danica and then took her full-time in NASCAR. We used her in a lot of ads. I think she's been in more Super Bowl commercials than anybody in history, Right. weirdly. And so one one ad, we were doing a spoof on the old baseball steroid hearings. Yep. And so, we, you know, we had the girls that were playing the, the baseball players. And Danica was going to do the big reveal that she had been enhanced right. by having a website at GoDaddy. Well, I was playing her lawyer at the table there, and I objected vehemently to being in the ad because I was always behind the scenes, you know, kind of editing what was going on. But I did agree to be in that ad, and it turned out to be the most watched Super Bowl ad in history. I can't believe I forgot to ask about this earlier. Literally, as of today, it's the single most viewed ad in the history of Super Bowl commercials. It, it, it's it's absolutely madness to what think did about the it. People, what did the people that knew you think of that? Because it was a complete diversion from your reputation. <laughs> you, you you know what I mean? At the time, you were not someone that was going to well, do that. Well, I said, you know, look, I don't want to be in the ad, but if I have to be in the ad, I'm playing the lawyer and I'm going to play the straight guy, right? So I was in my pinstripe suit and yep. my silk blouse and like, you know, the whole thing. But... It was funny because I think people who knew me thought exactly what you thought. I'm pretty straight-laced. I'm kind of a nerdy rule follower. And the, the fact that I would play, you know, Danica, who, by the way, is just inherently beautiful. And in addition to being a very serious person and an above average race car driver, that I would and she's would, really smart. I mean, she's a good business person, isn't she? She really is. And she's had a her post race career has been phenomenal. Right. She's got a wine di- distributor or, or winery. And, you know, she does a very successful podcast, sort of a all this sort of self-improvement stuff. But but the people that knew me were a little surprised. But then they saw it and they thought, oh, OK, you're the serious person. Was in it the fun? So that ad. Not to get too inside baseball, most commercials are done in short snippets. And you'll have, you know, a couple of cameras and you do three seconds or five seconds or something like that. That ad was filmed like a television show in a 360 degree studio with 12 cameras. And it was all done in one take. The entire wow. thing. And so it was very unusual in that sense. So the, the actresses actually had to act, right? Which is not, yep. not that common in a, in a commercial setting. And the... The set was very elaborate. So you had the whole crowd in the back and you had this whole panel of judges in the front. And and Bob Parsons was in that ad as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was one of the judges. And, you know, in between takes, Bob and I would would huddle and decide how we wanted to tweak it and things. But it, it was very interesting because the the technical piece of that ad we were very proud of. Because it had really very seldom ever been done in that way. Obviously very expensive to produce it that way. But it turned out to be a great ad and people loved it. It's interesting because we talk about our lives and the weird directions they take. How many people can say, been a part of a company that was a startup of 12 people, they throw names out like OJ and Snoop Dogg. (laughs) And oh, by the way, I've been in a Super Bowl commercial. It's, It's a pretty incredible life, wouldn't you say? It is. And for a person who grew up in Southeast Denver, just a scrappy little freckle-faced redheaded kid. There's no reason that I should have grown up to have any of those experiences, except that I believe people treat you the way you let them treat you. Mm-hmm. And look, you got to work hard and you got to earn respect and you have to treat people well. But at the end of the day, it, 
you know, education becomes your great equalizer. And if if you do what you have to do and you work harder than anybody, you know, and you let it be known that you're not going to be treated as less than. You can end up with these crazy life experiences, too. Where did that sense of um, self-confidence come from? You know, because it takes a level of self-confidence. You know, you have to be used to being told no and realizing that that doesn't mean no. You you telling me I can't doesn't mean I can't. Where does that come from in you? So you're the oldest in your family, right? So I'm the youngest and only have brothers. And so part of it was, you know, getting the crap beat out of you by all your older brothers your whole life. But also my both of my parents, we didn't have much, but they were both very disciplined, both very hardworking. But my one secret weapon is I had a really smart aunt, my mom's sister, my aunt Anne. And she said, look, Christine, if you ever want to get out of Southeast Denver, she was a successful businesswoman, very smart. She said, you're going to have to get educated and you're going to have to work harder than anybody you know. And watching her and, you know, seeing how my parents interacted in a situation where they didn't have much, but they demanded respect and they earned respect. I think that's probably where it came from. But the single most important thing, and I don't typically, you know, talk about this in the political context, is simply from my faith. And because I really believe that in your life, you should consider other people as as better than yourself. And if you seek always to serve people, then, you know, you you necessarily get respect. You, this is the perfect interview because you just lead me right into the segues because that was the next one is one of the things that I have always admired about you. Um, it would have been easy for you to take the rest of your life off. You had achieved great success financially. Like you said, the businesses you have, but your philanthropy your giving is is something really something that I try to emulate, and I, I wish I could achieve the level. And I'm not talking about someone that could write a check writing a check. Your real involvement, St. Vincent de Paul, an organization we both love so much. Yeah, yeah. What what drives that for you? The, because it's constant. We've had conversations about getting together, and you're doing this, or you're doing that with this organization, and you're on that board. What what is that about you? So some of the philanthropy and some of the volunteer work is is subject matter driven, right? So I've been on the board of Great Hearts for more than a decade. I believe that every child should have the opportunity to get a great education, right? St. Vincent de Paul really serves the underserved, and they do it in a way that actually tangibly you can observe. They feed hundreds of people every single day, right? So some of that is is subject matter driven, but I I really think... Part of the reason I've been successful financially is because I've never really focused on the finance piece. I've always focused on just doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And okay, I know. It's easy for me to say, sitting where I sit, don't focus on money, it's, it's overplayed. But if, if you have an opportunity to make an impact and you don't do it, and you roll your tape forward and you think, what is the end of my life going to look by- like reflecting back? Are you really going to be proud of what you accomplished? And isn't it true that when you do something, you think you're helping someone else. And at the end of it, 
you feel like you've gotten so much more from it 1, than you've ever done. One thousand. I'm starting to tear up talking about St. Vincent de Paul, uh, taking groups of people. We started something called the Action Alliance here and bringing listeners to introduce them to organizations. And we went and prepared and served a meal down at Cass at the at the yeah, yeah. and. Uh, you could tell who the people who had never done it before at time of service because you prepare the meal, you get it ready to go, and then they open the doors. And when you just see this wave of people coming in, yeah. that seems like it's never going to end. You can see people that are for the first time there realizing this is the amount of need and then telling them it's a tip of the iceberg. It, it's life-changing to realize the needs that are out there and to be a small part of and to watch those people now sitting at a table with someone that's getting their only hot meal of the day and having a conversation with them and realizing these are human beings that just need human contact. So years ago, I was down at St. Vincent de Paul and they have a a morning speaking series that that Jimmy Walker's been doing Mm -hmm. for, for, oh my gosh, probably 20 years now. And he had asked me to come down and speak. And I, you know, it's it's motivational, and you talk about never giving up, and you know, maybe tell a couple of personal stories. And at, at the end of it, you know, a few people will come up and say hello to you and thanks for talking. But a woman came up to me, and she said, "Just remember that this might be temporary, because I was you once upon a time." Hmm. She had been a successful businesswoman, had everything, and then, you know, through a series of life events, just lost it all. And I thought, isn't that true? Couldn't you be the guy sitting at the table? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Y- you have a former colleague, and I won't say his name, but you'll know who I'm talking about, that had it all and lost it all. Mm-hmm. Until he had literally one cent in his bank account. Yep. And was getting meals from... Yeah. Worked, the food bank, right? Uh, told a story of, of and, and was very forthright about this and said that he remembered driving to his job at the Amazon Fulfillment Center, listening to morning radio and saying to himself, I used to be that guy on I the was radio. that guy, yeah. And ended up so happy for him being successful again. But it's, it's humbling. It, it, it is. And, and I think... You can't overemphasize the point that you made, and I don't want to gloss over it, that no matter how much you do it, you always get more blessed than the blessing that you give. So what now? What are some of the things you're involved in? Because we haven't caught up in a while, but what, tell us some of the things you're doing now. So you may know, and I think we've, we've spoken about this, I got a call... Uh, several years ago that the Prostate Cancer Foundation was looking for new leadership. And and I went over and, and spent a day with Mike Milken, who founded the organization when he got out of prison and, and was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And so I did that for four years. And then my former colleague or my former partner was, was dying and needed help with his law firm. So I went and helped him out for a couple of years and stayed about six months after he died to, to help, you know, kind of get the firm stabilized. But again, you know, just opportunities to you. You could just sit down and not do anything. But if you have an opportunity to do something that's really impactful and at the Prostate Cancer Foundation, the research we were funding was impacting 73 forms of human cancer. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you do it? Yeah. I mean, just. And, and it's a chance to learn something new and a chance to have a different impact. And a lot of the people that you've had sitting in this chair actually are prostate cancer survivors. Mm-hmm. It is the breast cancer for, for men. And, and, you know, a lot of people aren't aware of it. So here's what I've tried to do. 
I've just tried to make myself available to use my weird conglomeration of experiences and education and expertise to make an impact wherever I go, right? When my uh, girls were young, um, my youngest loved Cindy McCain, and I never met her, but just admired her. And we had a chance to meet her when she was younger at one of the events I was at, and she never forgot it. Um, Do you realize what an inspiration you are to young women, that young women have, have looked up to you and said, for someone, if you can do it, I can do it. You've kind of blazed that trail. Do you feel that way? I just feel like a regular guy. You know, <laughs> here's the thing. I, I, and but I mean, you do know that you have influenced a lot of people. Well, I affirmatively try to mentor young women. Good. Right. I, I, I think that that is one of the single most important things that successful high capacity people can do. And, you know, maybe I can be a little bossy sometimes and think that young people are a little misguided sometimes. But but yeah, I mean, I do think that there's some ability to have influence, but I don't think of myself like Cindy McCain. Right. I I don't have that kind of a platform. I'm never going to go be Joe Biden's ambassador to anything. I'll never be any Democrats ambassador to anything (laughs) for that matter. But but look. Anybody can have influence wherever they are, right? Sure. I'm, I'm rarely the smartest guy in the room. Once in a while, I get to be. Uh, I think you're selling yourself a little short. You know, I, 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 I don't claim that, that mantle, but what I am always is the single hardest person, working person I know. Always, um, always. I do know that when it comes to the entrepreneurship part of you, one of the things that you do is it, talk to young entrepreneurs about the mistakes they're going to make. Yeah. And the mistakes you've made. And, you know, I was one of those hard. I used to say to my mother, I'll make my own mistakes. I'll pay for my own mistakes. And I ran my head into that wall a hundred times before I realized <laughs> it hurt. But having someone, yeah. there's a mentor I have. His name is Bruce in business that when I went through a horrible time in business, assured me that this is going to be a blip on the screen and gave me some semblance of um, perspective. You do that a lot with young people that are smart and have great ideas. How important is that to you? Well, I think the opportunity to speak into those lives, particularly for the brilliant geniuses who are great inventors and don't have so much experience on the business side is really important. And I have a venture capital firm. We get pitched ideas from people. And, you know, you pass on most of them because it's just not in your wheelhouse or whatever. But you always take the opportunity to say, here's some things that you could think about. That's just the fun stuff, right? Right. That's just, let me tell you about the mistakes we made when we were going from 12 Mm -hmm. people to 4,000. Don't don't repeat the same mistakes we made. That that to me is just fun. And and, and I, I love the opportunity to do that. And the... So many entrepreneurs, well, now everybody thinks they're an entrepreneur, I guess. Sure. Right? Everybody's got a, a everybody's personal brand. Everybody's got a personal brand, so I guess everybody's an entrepreneur. But people often make the same mistakes, right? They build up their payroll too fast, right? How many times have you talked about signing, signing the front of the check, right? <laughs> and the the real serious traumatic experience of wondering how you're going to pay your payroll. I wish I, right? wish I, I re- literally wish I had known you back then with the mistakes. I, when I look back now, seriously, because I was a good electrician. 
But I didn't realize how bad I was at business. Yeah. And had I had someone that could have said, hmm, probably not a good idea to mortgage your house to grow your business. You didn't do that. Hey, did oh, you? yes, I did. Oh, yes, I did. I took a $50,000 line of credit out of my house to grow my business. I think I might have forgotten about it. I think I've just kind of put that, <laughs> put that piece out of my head. But yeah. So look, uh, one phone call from somebody to somebody like you who's lived through it is worth two years of personal experience. Right. You could spend 30 minutes on the phone with somebody. So look, if I can help you avoid that drama, I do it often for people. I want to talk about last thing is about um, patriotism, because I know your husband and the work he does, ROTC, working with young people. Um, I've gone to events, little events all over the place, and I'll run into you at events. And I'm like, what do you what do you and it's ROTC is here. Yeah, and our kids are there. You're, the kids are there. Can you talk about that and your admiration for your husband and his work and and how that works together with the two of you? Yeah, so when he retired from the military, my husband started an ROTC detachment at a high school in Chandler, and he's in his 22nd year doing that. And it gives us such an incredible visibility into what's going on in the classroom every single day, which feeds into my passion for education and and helps satisfy that itch. But the opportunity to help make better citizens not to try to recruit them to the military, not to try to you know, force them down some kind of a career path, but just the chance to take 14-year-olds and spend four years with them so that by the time they graduate, they have a set of discipline and they understand how their life is going to work. You can't beat it. And part of it for us is we just have felt called to service to the country and we've spent our entire adult lives doing it. I don't know why some of us are more patriotic than others. I mean, maybe it's in our DNA. Because I know you are like that, too. Yeah, but, well, obviously the sacrifice of my brother is a big part of it, but we were but like that. you were that. like that before. We were like yeah. that before. And going to your house, I mean, how how tall is the flagpole? I mean, how high does that flag go out, out at your house? It goes high enough so you can see it from all 360 <laughs> yes, degrees. Exactly right. Yeah. That's one of the landmarks of trying to find where your house is. Yeah. Um, but also to those young people to have that sense of love for their country, um, you know, the old Kennedy adage, ask not what your country yeah. can do for you. Yeah, that's that right. re- Instilling that in young people. And it's great to see when those young people show up at an event that they realize what they're representing when they're when they're presenting the flag, when they're part of the color guard or honor guard, that they are yeah. they've are, that's a big responsibility for a young person. And uh, it's it's of all the things you do. That's one of the coolest, I think, that with high school kids, probably not something you're going to win awards for, be recognized for, but I think it's immensely important. It is. And I have to say, not just because he might listen to this one day, but because I say this all the time, I'm married to the single nicest guy known to mankind. He is a sweetheart of a man. And I don't know what he did in a prior life to get stuck with me for 36 years, but honestly, the hours and the work that he puts into that program to help kids understand that honoring your country matters is something that he'll get a lasting reward for. Not an award today, but in eternity, he'll be rewarded for that. Um, 
I want to thank you. I mean, you've been such a great friend. Arizona's lucky to have you here. And it is such a great story. And I hope that this, if you get to watch any of these podcasts, learning about people you admire, I like, again, there were things I had no idea happened. And I learned about them recently about you. And I appreciate you sharing them because sometimes it's not easy to talk about yourself. Well, thank you for having me. And I'd like to talk about anything other than myself. So you're but it's, right. it needs to be told. I mean, it's a great you don't think it's a great story. No, it's if just, it was somebody else's story, you'd read the book. <laughs> I would read the book. OK, I'm just a regular guy. I just work harder than the other. OK, people. perfect. Christine Jones. Discover more amazing Arizonans with Mike Broomhead at KTAR.com, the KTAR News app or wherever you get your podcasts.